Hello and welcome back. I'm here again with Robin Kerner and we're talking about woke culture and trying to understand why it is that so many people in not just universities but in public life, in big corporations, in Britain and America and much of the rest of the English-speaking world, why it is that they're increasingly into this cult of intersectionalism. Why, why is it and how can we understand it better in order to be able to do something about this incredibly divisive ideology? So, so Robin, welcome back and thank you for, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Douglas. Now, yeah. when we spoke last time, we talked a little bit about woke, um, almost like a, a, a virus that has infected the education system, the university system, and from uh, a number of social science departments, universities in America and Britain, um, really festered this this sort of um, erroneous way of, of looking at and trying to understand the world. Today we're going to talk a little bit about a slightly different way of understanding woke culture um, and this woke cult and that is we're, we're going to look at it in ideological terms. So do you want to say a little bit about how, how can we understand woke and the um, cult of intersectionism as, a, as an ideological phenomenon? So if we go to um, maybe the psychological underpinnings that predispose someone toward one kind of ideology or another, um, the woke idea, I think, is quite um, a distillation of a kind of, uh, let's say, leftism that is, is very much on the care versus harm moral psychological axis. Right? This is the predominant moral psychological axis of people who tend to be on the left. Um, and so the woke culture is very much about, I say, as I say, distilling that or crystallizing that into seeing, I would say, everything as um, harm is being done to this victim group. And if you've got a victim group, you've got a victimizing group. Um, and it seems that that's, uh, I think that's the, the, the primary frame, right, the, through which the woke try and understand the world. And it's very appealing, as I say, to a certain kind of uh, moral psychology. So, so, so like Marxists, instantly you start to see the history of the world as the history of this, this struggle, this, this class conflict between the oppressed and the oppressors. Well, yes. And I mean, in as much as the, the thing with Marx, of course, is that Marx is understanding uh, or trying to understand, according to understand the way the world works in terms of in this very simple groups. It's a very, very low resolution analysis, right? and it's also quite, uh, in quotes again, deterministic. Um, people like us are more, are more actually interested in individual agency. And obviously, the thing about um, intersectionality as a, as a doctrine, and it's been said many times, and I'm particularly clever here, is that it reduces to individualism when taken to its logical extreme. Yeah. Um, but just, of course, it's not being taken to its logical extreme, is it? So go on. Well, ju just as a Marxist a generation ago might have said that, you know, this person is a bourgeois, this person is a proletariat, this person is a capitalist, and therefore judged them on, on that, that basis. Today, you see something rather similar with, with the, the, the neo-Marxists, the, the, the woke identitarians. They will label someone as being a woman or a minority ethnic group or a man. and 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 judge you accordingly rather than looking at you as an individual who's capable of right. good things and bad things and, and, and what have you. 
Yes, and I think I think part of that is the fact that you know once you've got that framework, if I feel that I understand everything that I need to understand about the world once I put you in that bin, then I don't have to engage you as an individual. I don't have to engage you any further to understand um, anything more about your life and therefore how things in culture and things in politics may be affecting you, or indeed you may be affecting them. So yeah, it, it's um, I mean it's easy, isn't it? It provides a framework. It's, it's, it's quite a lazy. You don't. It's it's quite lazy. You can you can slot everything into this pattern. Right. And exactly, and that's what all these kind of. That's what is dangerous about all these doctrines because they cannot be accurate, can they? They they have to miss the data that matter, which are the lived experiences of individuals. And of course, when you say lived experience of individuals, that's really a tautology because the only thing having living lived experiences are individuals but these doctrines enable people to kind of just completely ignore that right so i'm going to have my theory without any test against data i'm no scientist does that and i'm speaking to you though as a, as a scientist i did originally i was a physicist and then studied philosophy of science so that's kind of where i'm coming at this from the epistemology is of it is, is very interesting to me. Um, and of course it does does this other work right which makes it stick um, to use a phrase we used or a word we used uh, the last time, which is it provides um, it provides a moral framework, a simple moral framework in which I can experience myself as being better than the next guy, and um, and that you know that's something I certainly did at the yeah you know, when I was younger. Um, for me, religion played did did that psychological work for me, and then my so my relationship to religion has now changed, but I can see that I. That, I had a moral framework that was giving me something psychologically. I'm not just saying it, it was therefore wrong, but you know that is something that we we reach for. Many people reach for. But this is leading on to a really fascinating way of trying to understand um, the woke mindset. It, in the olden days, all of us would have had, or, or almost all of us would have had, um, a, a religious sense of morality. Church attendance was much higher, or, or people would have uh, gone to the synagogue, or, 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 or whatever, and they would have had a, a a moral code handed to them from their church or their family or their society. In an increasingly secular world, we 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 still have this need for working out what's right and what's wrong, but without the help of a of a of a religious code to do it for us, our is one way of looking at work to see lots of young people who who don't have an abstract moral framework handed to them struggling to come to terms with what's right and what's wrong and, and getting themselves into a terrible mess because instead of instead of looking to scripture or, or you know long established moral codes that have persisted for generations what they're doing is they're looking in their twitter timeline and and getting into an awful mess morally because they're trying to work it out for themselves yeah. is, is that one way of looking at this well, I mean, yeah, I think you're, yes, I would say so. There is a religiosity about this, right? Um, as I say, there is a, a natural grasping for some kind of moral system into which we can slot ourselves. Um, I think all of that is true. And I would say more, though, um, the problem I don't think is even, uh, is even fully with the ideology. It's not so much the content of the belief as the way the content is believed in. There's this dogmatism, right? I mean, we all we all go through erroneous beliefs. 
are we doxastically open or are we doxastically closed? Meaning, how close-minded are we about them? And you talk about the, uh, the Twitter timeline. Um, you know, that is famously, I mean, I can't bear it. And, and, and it's famously a place where if you don't conform, you know, to whatever, whatever, whatever the dominant tribes, uh, you know, doctrine may be, you know, that encounter your religious post, then you get, you get you know, jumped on. And so there's this, um, there's a real incentive to not be open to, to other points of view, because there's a, there's kind of a lot at stake in terms of your standing in a community. Um, in social media, that's a huge thing. And what people don't appreciate about self-interest in politics enough is that the biggest element of self-interest when people take political decisions, it's not how much money am I going to get out of voting this way or that way. It's what is my standing, what is my relationship in my community? Now, the community can be whatever community you identify with, but when you're identifying with the woke community, as if we can call it that, because that's what we're talking about, um, it seems to be, it seems to be quite a closed, doxastically closed uh, religion. It's it's interesting. In in the UK, initially the woke mob would attack statues of people who they regarded as responsible for the slave trade. But because of this sort of process of competitive virtue signalling amongst the wokies, they they ended up sort of attacking statues of people like Robert Peel and 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 Abraham Lincoln for goodness sake, a man who who famously famously abolished slavery. So you're you're almost seeing a competition within the woke cult itself to show who is more pure, who is more, who, who is even, even better than, than, than the woke mob. And I, I, I think that's incredibly dangerous because they're not really interested in, in winning over converts. They're, they're, they're rather like some of the characters in that very famous play by Arthur Miller, The Crucible. They, they, they take on this sort of zealotry of their own and, and they end up sort of, you know, the, the mob ends up eating itself because, because in, in, in its search for, for ever, ever greater purity. It's, it's really quite terrifying to watch. Yeah, and I, you know, and, and, that, and that, might be, that might be what saves us from it, right? Because it is eating itself. I mean, interestingly, you know, we discussed briefly, uh, last time we spoke, Douglas, our involvement in the, the John Locke Institute. And as the academic dean for that, I've been interviewing this year about, probably heading for 300 young people. So between the ages of about 16, 15 and 19. Um, and, and unsurprisingly, you know, these, the issues that might be identified with uh, those who are woke um, are issues that concern many of these young people that I'm, I'm speaking to. But many of them are saying, yes, but actually, you know, I will often ask, you know, do you have an opinion that, that your peers would find outrageous? And I often get an answer back that speaks exactly to some of these. Um, uh, kind of almost moral demands or political demands that, that you would say are woke. And, and so I'm, I think we might be seeing the, the, the eating of itself already. I mean, you're, you talked about the statues. I mean, the rest of us are looking at it and going, you know, they defaced that statue, why haven't they read a book, right? But as you say, it's kind of, it is, but this also goes to what I was saying, that, that this provides a framework to satisfy the psychological we had, need. We had again this week in London, anti-fascists, 
supposed anti-fascists attacking and graffitiing the statue of Winston Churchill. I mean, Winston Churchill was the original anti-fascist. I mean, you know, and, and one of the people they interviewed said, oh, but he was racist. Wait until they hear about the guy that Churchill defeated. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, and the point about that, again, to, to, the, to the point about you know, what's going on psychologically, how it is akin to a religion and this closed, this closedness, I would say, all right, let, I mean, I might be a little kinder to them than you do this. I would say, all right, let's have the national debate about Churchill. But what you don't get to do is to unilaterally make that decision and destroy other people's property as if you are on this moral high ground. Again, that's the, that's the issue. I mean, I'll, if somebody wants to come with me about, with that opinion, I mean, I will say exactly what you said about Churchill. But if, if they're not destroying things and deciding that uh, I don't have a view that they have to listen to, even though they're part of the same demos as I, then at least maybe we can at least have a conversation. But we can't if this is the attitude that people are bringing to bear because they're so self-righteous. And I think maybe the... Re Go ahead, Jan. It, it, in, in the UK and in America, you, you, clearly you have woke mobs. You have woke mobs in, in Whitehall and um, to a much greater extent, you, you have them in Rochester, New York and, and Portland and other places. Um, you, you have wokeness on university campuses, but there's also another expression of wokeness. And, and to me, this is where it's actually really most sinister. Wokeness within institutions, you get it in universities, in, 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 in a whole range of institutions. And I, I wonder if there's perhaps an institutional explanation for trying to understand woke um, as a phenomenon as well. I can't help noticing that when I look at institutions that have been captured by woke um, thinking, whether it's Cambridge University or the um, Football Association, Premier League, um, or the um, you know, uh, uh, Natural History Museum here in London, um, or some of the government agencies that are, are, are promoting a, an aggressively um, woke um, idea of, of um, critical race theory. They all have a number of things in common. Number one, these institutions all seem to have a very large amount of money underneath them. Um, it, they, they're, they're well resourced. They, as institutions, don't seem to face an awful lot of competition to get that resource, whether it's a football association or a government department or, or indeed a big tech company. They also seem to be run by quite often some pretty mediocre management. And I just wonder if maybe there may be a way of understanding woke as a, as a way of mediocre managers who run big institutions creating a, a, a protection barrier to, 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 to exclude competition in the managing of those companies and those institutions. It, it, it seems to me that woke and the pursuit of very politically correct work practices might be a way for managers to bluntly exclude some of the competition, to look as if they're running their organization with a sense of purpose, but actually to operate in their interest to keep out any competition that might, might, might displace them. Do you think there's any, any, any merit in that? It's, it's, I mean, that's an interesting idea. I think you, you're naturally slightly more cynical than I am in as much as I think you're, you're more willing to go to um, kind of deliberate intent. I think before I went, I'm not saying you're wrong there, Douglas, this is something I will think further about, but the, the first thing that comes to my mind as you're talking about that is, um, 
I think a lot of the managers of these institutions think this is the safe bet, yeah. right? The safe bet is to lean this way before you do anything else. So in other words, before it's, I'm going to exclude everyone else, it's self-preservation, right? Yes. It's kind of, I think it somewhat proceeds. And, and I think, um, and for a while, they might be right, right? Because going to your point about they don't need to compete for resources, the kind of institutions that we might think about exhibiting this, um, you know, this phenomenon, they, they tend to be in this certain, uh, let's say, subculture, part of our society. That's where they come from, and that, and they're the same. That's the same subculture they have to sell back into, right? So the safe bet is, and, and Nassim, Nicholas Nassim Taleb talks about this, right? How a minority can take over a majority. As long as the minority is willing to make enough fuss and to refuse to accept non-compliance, if the majority, if it doesn't cost the majority to go along with it, that minority will eventually become the majority. And I think if you're operating these kind of institutions it, in these socioeconomic strata, you know, high up in our society, so the people who went to Oxbridge, uh, uh, who are then running the institutions, whether they be media, whether they be museums, or whether they be, here's one that, that gets my good. Um, entertainment on the BBC. It, it's like, I, you know, I'm such a fan of, um, I mean, I'm, I live in America. I'm an American as well as a Brit. And the one thing written that I have taken with me to America that I feel I can't live without, apart from cups of tea, is good radio for comedy. And, it, and yet I have got to a point where there are shows where I'm just like, oh God, this is so predictable, right? Because I just know what the jokes are going to be, the same, the same, the same. And it was interesting at, at, after the Brexit moment, um, I think it, it kind of sheds further light on the point you're making. Um, when those who voted leave were listening to one, two, three years, well, they weren't getting their way for one or two or three years, their democratic way that they should have got. But they also had to listen to these comedians predictably, even afterwards, still telling them what they were. And at the end, I think, you know, people were getting booed off. And I don't think it, well, it wasn't because there was a political difference. It was because they were just so bored of it. Yeah. But, you know, there we were. And so what we then see, which also goes to your point, Douglas, is there's this normalization. So there's this, some, uh, uh, an ideology that, that you and I might think is actually quite extreme, but it becomes normalized just through, because it's, well, it's what we're exposed to. Now, the majority aren't buying in, but their only option is to just switch off. They don't have proportional representation on the boards of these institutions, and it, in it, the media, etc. It's interesting. When you come across a, a woke institution, it almost always tells you that that institution doesn't really face much competition. If you run the Natural History Museum, you get a, a large grant. Your customers are going to come in the door anyway because they're not paying customers. They're, they're, they're getting to look around your museum for free and the prestige of your organization means you're going to get you know millions of people literally every year wanting to come through your doors if you run i don't know uh, an old prestigious university you can actually be producing some pretty mediocre courses yeah. um the reputation of your university means you're not going to have a shortage of people wanting to come and study in in that institution if only because of the the, the beauty of the buildings and 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 the the, the perceived reputation that it had um, and I, I can't help wondering if, if actually we should slightly turn this around. In, whenever people come across a woke institution, what we should ask ourselves is not, 
isn't this outrageous? What we should ask ourselves is, how do we make this institution have to compete for custom? And how do we make this institution have a more competitive management structure? Because you mentioned Radio 4. How are Radio 4 programmes commissioned? We know the answer to that. If you go to the right part of the right section of the Groucho Club, if, if you know the right people and you hang out at the Edinburgh Fringe together, you, you, you become buddies of people. And quite often with the BBC, you've seen people who, who were producing um, and commissioning for the BBC set up um, production companies, get lucrative contracts. It's, it's, it, it, it's not an area that would stand up to any form of, form of scrutiny. So, you know, invariably, when, when you see this, this wokeness, it, it, it screams out at us that there is, there is a cartel, there's a lack of competition. These are institutions that are basically run by a little oligopolistic elite. And I, I think once we start to recognize that, and, and woke is almost worn as a badge by people who run these institutions in order to make them look like they're, they're not part of a self-serving elite, but that, that almost always invariably is, is what those in these institutions who promote the woke agenda are. They, they are they're using this as a way of protecting their turf. Um, I, I wonder if you've got any more thoughts and ideas as to how we, we can counter um, this woke agenda. What, what would you recommend to, I don't know, Boris Johnson or, or the next president of the United States or Donald Trump? Or what would you recommend they do as a matter of public policy to try to counter woke? You know, I actually think there's a large political opportunity here for the, the, for the people who recognize some of the dangers of this woke culture and woke politics. I see a big political open goal. Um, I see a potentially, um, I don't know when the moment is, but it's coming because there is a majority who just are bored of it. And there are a majority, there are a majority of reasonable, let's say, Democrats and Labour voters if we're looking on the left, as well as obviously conservatives and Republicans, who are starting to feel they have more in common with other reasonable people who are on the other side politically than with the extreme wing of their own side. And in many respects, what we're talking about here represents a kind of extreme wing of one side. And um, as, uh, especially in the United States, I don't think it's quite the, the size of the problem in the UK, but we're seeing it in, in the West generally, as of this, this polarization and increased tribalism. People are increasingly saying, yes, our politics isn't serving us. And they would like a way out of, of justice. Oh, I, I have to go with the extremists of my tribe. They want less tribalism. Mm -hmm. I do think there is a political opportunity for a leader of whatever reasonable strike to say, to literally get ahead of this and say, you know what? Um, you might be right, you might be wrong, but you know, I don't need I don't need politics when I go to the supermarket. I don't need politics when I'm listening to this kind of show. I don't need politics when you know, in America right now there's the, you know, the sports, watching sports, right? And and they think and people just that's not what they're going to those institu those institutions for. Um and I and so I think uh, there is a there is a market reaction ready to happen. I mean, it's already happening if you go ahead and look. Um, but that market reaction also is ready to happen in politics, right? It's there. There's demand. It's it's it's. I, I think you're really onto something. I mean, we you know, the other day the the producers of a well-known brand of ice cream started to give us lectures 
about UK immigration policy and policing. And I thought to myself, hang on, I, I don't, however nice your ice cream is, I don't really want you to tell me, and you know, whether I agree with you or not is not the issue. Um, it, it's, it's almost disrespectful to the customer to, to suppose that, you know, the person who produces the ice cream that I buy should be telling me what to think about things that, frankly, I, I might not even want to think about. It's, it's an extraordinary sort of yes. um, act yes. of self-aggrandizement. You're exactly right. And it's an act of self-aggrandizement within position, right? Because the rules of the game when I walk into um, a museum or I walk into a supermarket, I'm saying supermarket because this has actually happened to me. I went to literally buy some bananas at a supermarket in the United States. And, and, and it was all, um, well, there were all these political posters around my bananas as if my, you know, bananas were particularly left wing. I mean, I, maybe they all bent leftward. And I was like, yeah, and it's not that I... Um, what, were the, what were the political posters saying? Were they, were they giving you a lecture about... It was, to, it was to, I'll say it was to do with um, sexual and gender identity politics. Right. And, and you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's literally just the supermarket. I mean, it was nothing. Um, now, but, but now I get what they're doing because also because of the location of the supermarket. Right. They, they think their customers like that. Well, certainly this political sentiment they're expressing is consistent with the overwhelming majority of the community in which that supermarket is situated. But I still think they are missing the point which we are making here, which is nevertheless true for customers who would sympathize with the views expressed. And frankly, when it comes to you know, matters of um, kind of cultural matters and social matters, you know, I'm, I'm a practically a liberty you know live and let live do what you like in your bedroom you know so I, i've got no objection to it but i do have objection to as you said the this the imposition with the at least implied uh self aggrandizement like well thank you very much for correcting my morals you know and correcting my morals. Thank, thank you i just you know, i know i was thinking what i needed was bananas but i was wrong of course Some bananas and, and and let me work this out for my, i know i know i i i was watching the tennis the us open the other day and um i one of the reasons why i so enjoyed watching a game of tennis was because all the other stuff i've been flicking through all the different channels it was it was either raw politics the news or it was a BBC comedy show, which was politically correct uh, uh, propaganda, or it was a BBC drama, more politically correct propaganda. And being able to watch a, a competition between two athletes hitting a ball across the net was wonderful because it had nothing to do with any of that. And long may that last, by the way. Keep politics out of tennis and uh, out of ice cream and bananas. Um, Robin, thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking part in this. It's it's um, always illuminating to hear hear your point of view on these things, and um, yeah, um, I hope I hope you'll um, join us again in a week or so. Thank you so much. Absolutely, love to Douglas. Thank you for your time. Thanks.